Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Zechariah had pulled priest duty. He got to go up to the temple in Jerusalem, and this was, this was an amazing opportunity. His name was going to be thrown into uh, the hat. You know, they draw names out of a hat. They called it casting lots. They drew a name out of a hat to see which priest would get to go into the holy place in the temple that Herod had built. And they would get to go into that holy place and standing right in front of the veil, which separated the holy place from the Holy of Holies. Standing right in front of that veil, this priest whose name was chosen out of the hat, this priest would get to offer an incense offering on the altar of incense, the golden altar. Of course, this room, very few get to go into this room. And when you go into this room, it is gold-plated. It, it, the whole thing is, is covered in gold. It's just dazzling. Zechariah wondered, would this be the year? He was an old man. He had served God as a priest. He had been faithful all his life to Yahweh. And here he was. Once again in Jerusalem, and he wondered, will my name be drawn? Of course, it was a mix of excitement yet dread, right? It's always a mixture of excitement and dread when your name is chosen. It's always that way, even if you're just winning the, the drawing down at Fultmer's. There's always a bit of excitement and dread. Because now people in town know that you're a winner. People might have expectations on you providing a free steak dinner because you won that Weber kettle that they were giving away. He had those mixtures of emotions. And as they were pulling the name from the hat, they read it and they said, Zachariah. Zachariah had been chosen. He quickly brushed up on his Leviticus. <laughs> He quickly brushed up. He quickly studied the rabbis to see how am I supposed to perform these duties? What am I to do? How do I do this correctly? How do I make sure that the incense offering is accepted by Yahweh? How do I make sure that I am a proper representative for the people? And he went in awe and excitement and dread into the holy place. He walked in. His eyes adjusted to the brilliance of the gold in the room. With trembling in his hands, he took the incense and he offered it, an offering to the Lord. And just as he finished, a bright flash hit the room, and standing before him was a man, but not a man, an angel. And the angel spoke to Zechariah. He said, Zechariah, you and your wife Elizabeth will have a son, 
And you are to call the son John because he will prepare the way of the Lord. He is not supposed to drink wine. He is not supposed to drink strong drink. How do I know this will happen? I'm old. And Elizabeth is, is beyond childbearing years. The angel of the Lord, he said, I am Gabriel, and I am standing in the presence of God, and God sent me to tell you this. And because you have doubted the word of the Lord, you will be mute until the child is born. Outside, the people had gathered, and they were, they were curious. Had he dropped the fire? Because big lighters hadn't been invented yet. Had he stumbled the, the coal? Had he, had he fallen? Had he had a heart attack? Had he done it wrong and God struck him dead? What is going on with Zechariah? The doors open, and Zechariah emerges, and the people see that he can't speak, and he's making signs. They know something has happened. They know he had seen a vision. Zechariah returns home and Elizabeth, his wife, becomes pregnant. And for nine months, she had the blessing of not hearing her husband. For nine months, Zechariah couldn't speak. Some of you women are thinking, why can't Christmas happen to me? (laughs) Zechariah could not speak. And on the day of the birth, Elizabeth, who had grown up in this town, who had lived in this town all her life, and she had often wondered, are the people talking about me? Because she was childless. And childless in the ancient world was, was seen as a curse. Perhaps she had sinned as a child. Perhaps she was sinning now. Perhaps her and Zechariah, though he was a priest. How did they anger God? She was childless. And yet in her old age, (laughs) she hid herself for five months. She reappeared and there's, there's the baby bump, we call it these days. And Elizabeth... On the day of the birth, the the crowd hears, the the village hears, and they all crush into her adobe home. And the baby is born. The first cry is heard. And they grab up the child and they say, what shall his name be? Are you going to name him Zeke? Like his father? Maybe after a grandfather, maybe after a great-grandfather, but you've got to give him a name. It's going to be a name in the family. Zachariah is such a good name because it means Yahweh remembered. And he remembered you, Elizabeth. She says, no, the child's name is to be John. John? There's no Johns in your family. John? John? Just John, not even Jonathan. I mean, this is just John. Hey, Zeke, come here. Get him some paper. Get him parchment, something. Get this guy some way he can communicate. Come on. His name is Zeke, isn't it? Zechariah writes. 
And he pins and he writes. And the people read and they read, his name is to be John. And with that, like when you uncork, when you open a champagne bottle and it bubbles forth, out of his mouth comes praises of God because Zechariah can finally talk. His tongue is loosed and he's able to speak. His name is John. And immediately following this, the spirit of the Lord, the Holy Spirit comes upon Zechariah. It tells us, I don't know what that looks like. There's no film save in heaven. And we read what was read to us earlier today in Luke chapter 1. And we'll start in verse 67. Luke chapter 1 verse 67. And I wanted to set the stage because I have heard this so many times. I've sat in pews before I was a pastor. I was a person, right? And I sat in a pew and I listened to this over and over and over and over again. And I didn't get it. I didn't understand. I'm like, what? This isn't Christmas. This is some other dude. But I want to set this stage so you understand something about the Christmas story. As we learn the lyrics of Christmas, I want you to understand how this contributes to this amazing good news story. Because Gabriel, when he stood in the temple, he said, you failed to believe this good news. It's one of Luke's favorite words. Gospel. Good news. Zechariah, when his tongue's loose, he's finally able to, to speak. The words are not going to be on the screen because you need to bring your Bible. And hopefully you've got it open, your phone, your Bible to Luke 1, 67. It says this, his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. Praise. Now, by the way, when you hear prophecy, don't you think of book of Revelation real quickly, most of us, right? Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. I wanted to kind of read that quickly because he hadn't talked for nine months. And in the Greek, that's one sentence. It's one sentence. And man, if you like to write run-on sentences, you've got to say, I'm so thrilled that the Holy Spirit likes run-on sentences too. That the Holy Spirit said, print it, that's good Bible. And to the to the ire of all English teachers. But you just, 
You just feel this bubbling up from the guy. You feel this just, ah, I finally get to talk back to Elizabeth. But before I do any of that nonsense, I'm going to praise God. I've often struggled with, when I've heard and read this passage, what does this have to do with Christmas? What does this have to do with with Jesus? What does it have to do with the gospel? What is this? Did you hear some of the words that Zechariah uses in his prayer, in his prophecy? He says the word salvation. Luke loves this word, salvation. In fact, in the gospel of Luke, he uses it over and over again. And in his second book, the book of Acts, he uses it a bunch there. And did you know all the other gospels, the other three gospels, the word salvation is only used once? And this is a word, a hallmark word for the book of Luke. This is a concern of his that we would understand the way of salvation. And it begins here at the very start of his book. But I've always struggled as a kid because one of the things I realized that I had heard over and over again in church world, and God forbid that you have heard this from me, but one of the things I heard over and over again are a couple of Gentile distortions of the gospel. We're Gentiles, you and I, unless you're not, and you're a Hebrew. You and I are Gentiles, and we are prone to see the New Testament apart from the Old. We're prone to read the New Testament apart from the Old Testament. And when we do that, we miss out on the story. There's two Gentile distortions of the gospel. One is this. Uh, that our kingdom building through the gradual moral education of the human race will happen. (laughs) That we can build God's kingdom through education, moral education. I mean, that's why we structure sermons in Sunday the way we do, so you can be educated more. And this this is the classic mistake of liberalism. The idea that if we can just teach everybody and get them educated and get them to understand right from wrong and justice from injustice, and if we can just get them better educated, then we'll have a utopia. Then everything will be wonderful. If everybody was just enlightened, and typically we end it like like me. If everybody was enlightened like me, then it would be a great world to live in. Uh, The other gospel distortion that Gentiles are prone to is thinking that God's rescue of souls is apart, is separate from his rescue of your body and creation. Uh, We sing this. We've put this into songs. And sometimes we sing this here at church. We haven't sung in a long time, but uh, you, many of you grew up singing these songs. What are some of those songs? The one that keeps coming to my mind is Away in the Manger, and that is not the song that I'm thinking of. (laughs) The song All Fly Away. All Fly Away. It's this escapism, the idea that someday I'll just fly away. Really? If all you're going to do is fly away, then why did Jesus need to raise physically from the dead? If it's going to be a spiritual resurrection, why is his 
resurrection, his literal physical resurrection from the dead, so important, such a crux of the gospel. Why is that important? If we're just going to go into the sweet by and by and have a ethereal, bodiless experience. You see, I, I, I bought into that for many, many years. This understanding that my salvation, your salvation, is about my soul and it's separate from the body and creation. But did you see what Zechariah does? A good Hebrew to correct this. He links salvation to the conquering of enemies. He links salvation to the conquering of the shadows of death. He links salvation to the history of Israel. In fact, I came across this quote the other day. I think it's fantastic. It says this, if I can find it. I'll find it. It's really good. If our understanding and telling of the gospel could be true, even if there'd never been an Abraham or people of Israel, then it's a different gospel story than the one we find in the Bible. You see, this is why I didn't understand Zechariah. That's why I didn't understand his prayer for so long, because he seems to just take us all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. He seems to just reiterate this history. The promises that you gave Abraham, those are in the forefront of his mind for nine months as he's been silent. For nine months as he's had all this time to think. For nine months, no television, no internet, no cell phone, because those aren't around yet. The dude had silence. What would you do if you couldn't speak? Some of you are thinking, I would die. Some of you are thinking, some of you are thinking, what a blessing that would be. Because then I wouldn't have my foot in my mouth all the time. You would sit and you would ponder and you would think, And we get a glimpse of all that had transpired in his mind for nine months. And it's then energized by the Holy Spirit. And Zeke tells us that what God is doing is new. What God is doing is linked to the old. What God is doing is he is fulfilling those promises that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, that they all long to see the patriarchs. That he is fulfilling the promise that judges, that Samson, that the kings, that the prophets, that the priests, that they all had anticipated for millennia. These are now being fulfilled. It's so interesting that God, his sign to Zechariah was silence. Silence had been bothering people for so long at this point. It had been 400 years since a true prophet of God had spoken. Since a prophet of God had written anything. 400 years. And God was going to silence him for nine more months. And God then in his time brings about salvation. It's so fascinating to me that it's linked to all of Israel's 
history. And we forget that to our peril. We forget that and we warp it into something that's not the gospel of the Bible. Many of us think that this is about us and God. We think that our salvation is about us and God. We think that it's about us getting into heaven when we die. We think it's just that. Avoiding eternal punishment and enjoying eternal bliss. And certainly that's part of it. But do you hear what Zeke says? It's bigger. It's bigger than that. At the end of his prophecy... To shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death. To guide our feet into the path of peace. Who's going to do that for this world? Who's going to bring peace into this world? Who's going to guide you in the path of life? Out of the shadows of death. Who's going to guide you out of the darkness in this world? Does that person ride on Air Force One? Does that person have an earthly title, position? Is that person a doctor, a scientist? Is that person a mathematician or a poet? Is that person a songwriter or an actress? Who will lead us? Who will guide us? Who will stave off death for us? Who will bring light? Zeke knows. <laughs> Zeke knows. It's the one that was promised to Abraham. It's the one that was promised. The interesting thing is, gang, this gives me great hope because this is not just the story of Israel. Though it starts there, it expands and it includes Gentiles. It includes us. You know, as you read this passage, one of the challenges whenever you read a psalm is to figure out how does this apply to my life, right? And many of us, that's where we start our Bible reading, which is a little dangerous, just so you know. We start going, well, the enemies. Okay, well, my enemies are... Maybe they're thinking national enemies. Okay, maybe it's this, 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 this. And if you put this back into its historic context, who is Zeke talking about? They've had this long line of enemies that have oppressed Jerusalem, who have oppressed the Hebrews. They've had this long line of enemies, and there's this nameless legion of enemies that fill his mind, that fill his song. But in particular, my guess he's thinking Rome. When was the last time you worried about Rome? Oh, those mean Romans going to come and take all that we value in America? Rome? You mean Italians? They gave us pizza. I mean, good folks. Pretty place to go. Oh, we, don't, we don't concern ourselves with Rome. But that's the enemy that, that, that Zeke is talking about here. Rome, right? Is there another enemy? Because we can't apply that one to our lives. I mean, are we really going to make that link that God is fighting for America against our enemies? Out of this passage? Good luck with that. 
That's scary to me. If that's your exegetical mindset, if that's how you read the scriptures, if that's how you approach them, you can make it say whatever you want. No. Who's the enemy that lurks behind this? Who's the enemy of enemies? Darth Vader? Isn't it Satan? That ancient enemy of old? God's ancient enemy? Isn't that who has usurped his rule and reign in this world? Isn't that who has brought darkness and death and violence? Isn't that the one who's brought destruction? Isn't that the one that prowls around like a hungry lion looking for somebody to devour? Isn't that the enemy? Now, perhaps Zeke had this enemy in mind, but as the Holy Spirit is pinning this through Zeke, don't you think the Holy Spirit's thinking, eh, it's not just Rome. There's a bigger enemy. There's a greater enemy. There is an atrocious, evil, horrid enemy, and he wants to destroy you. See, one of the interesting things that we read throughout the scriptures is that Jesus defeats this enemy. One of the things that we did through Adam, one of the things that Adam did for us was he committed idolatry. He worshiped another God. And through that, he threw off the God of creation. He he worshiped this other God. That is the original sin. And in that, we brought about the fall. And over and over again in the New Testament, Paul picks up this theme that Jesus Christ's death and resurrection has defeated the principalities and powers and rulers of this dark age. Almost every time Paul talks about the resurrection of Christ, he links it to their destruction. And why does he do that? Because you can't reverse resurrection. You're going to kill him? He'll just do it again. You already killed him once. It didn't work. The grave couldn't hold him. You see, Christ is entering this world to bring about defeat of Satan. Now, as you read this, and this was written 2,000 some odd years ago, you're thinking, uh, so is it happening? Is death being defeated? Is evil being defeated? Is Satan being overthrown? And the answer is yes. But now, but not yet. It's happened, it's done with. The ultimate victory has been secured. Your salvation, your redemption, the resurrection of your body, if you place your faith in Jesus Christ, if you will follow him as Lord and Savior, your resurrection in this body, well, it'll probably be like my 18-year-old body, (laughs) is secured. It will happen. You will walk on streets of gold. Unless it's a figurative picture. You will walk. You will be present with God. 
You will be present with all those who are as dead, that Luther said, who died in Christ and have had their sins pardoned by God the Father because of the work of Jesus Christ. But yet, we still live in this world where there is a battle raging. There is eternal struggle going on. There's a battle between good and evil, between Yahweh and Satan, between the principalities and powers and rulers of this dark world and God and his heavenly hosts. And this continues. And you and I are on the battlefield. As one Advent thing I read this past week said, Jesus left a place that you and I can only imagine and entered into a place we wish we could forget. And one day, God will wipe away every tear. God will put the world to right. There will be no more Aleppos. There will be no more horrible, terrible, painful 18-month election cycles. Because there will be a king And his rule is not dependent upon you. But he invites you to submit. He invites you to be a part. He invites you to welcome him. So will you? Like Zeke, will you welcome this king? This son of God who comes to Save us, redeem us, guide us in paths of peace. Will you submit to this coming king? If you will, man, you're going to have a great Christmas. Man, you're going to have great Christmas songs to sing. And you will truly learn to live and sing the lyrics of Christmas. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, We thank you so much that throughout human history we can see your hand at work. You've given us stories. They don't always make sense. They don't always have a happy ending. You've given us stories. They don't give us lists of do's and don'ts. They don't help us to know exactly what to do every single moment of every single day. You gave us stories. And you give each of us a story. And for some of us, it's not clear what to do in our story. But I pray, Father, that just like Zeke experienced the angel and the brightness, and he saw a vision from God, I pray that each of us would know that you are a God who still is involved with people individually. And I pray that you'd give a timely word to those who need to hear it. And I pray, Father, that we would be people that even when you don't speak, even when we don't hear, even if it's that 400 years of silence, we would be faithful and we would know your promises will be fulfilled. Holy Spirit, help us. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. May he lead you in paths of peace. Amen.